Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. All right, beautiful humans, welcome back for another episode. This is Erin. And this is Denisha. We've got a really awesome episode planned for you all tonight. Um, Denisha, do you want to kind of introduce today's episode? I don't know if we want to do like a check-in or we just, I just would rather get straight to it. I think, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I like it when we have panels. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to talk too, too much tonight. Um, but I'm so excited, super excited about tonight's show. We are doing our panel discussion and tonight's panel is Black Voices in ABA. Um, this particular topic is, um, important to me because, of representation, obviously, it's important in this field. Many times we go to conferences or work or we show up to any type of meeting around a fellow behavior analyst and there's not many people that look like us and we don't get to hear those stories and hear those voices. So it was particularly important for me to bring a panel like this together. And I just can't wait um, to be able to share this space with fellow professionals that also share my melanin. So, yeah. What about you, Erin? Awesome. What does this show topic mean to you tonight? I'm just excited to learn. Seriously. Um, I think it's, it, it, unfortunately, it's often that I am not in the minority and I'm actually really excited to be in the minority tonight and to sit back and to listen to these amazing uh, voices that I think have a lot to offer and to teach um, our entire field. So, I'm really, really excited just to, to sit back and, and to listen tonight. Yeah. So Sounds this good. is our February show. And as folks should know, it is also Black History Month. I do want to make sure to say that while it's Black History Month, this show idea to have Black Voices in ABA has been in the works since our inception in September. When we first got started, a few people reached out about being on our show, including one of our guests tonight, which is Jada Tucker. And it was because of Jada um, her request to be on the show, she actually sparked the idea in my mind to have panel discussions. And I just thought it would be great to have that space within this podcast to just hear from people, um, especially hear from folks that we don't generally hear from in our field. So tonight we won't spend too much time talking as we really want our listeners to be able to hear from everyone on our panel. But before we get started, let's switch to talking about our Patreon subscribers. Erin, you want to take that one away? Yeah, just real fast. We, um, you know, we've talked about Patreon and how um, people can support the podcast. And so uh, we do want to give shout outs to people. Uh, this is the first time we've really done this. So uh, Kelly, my friend Kelly, who's over in the UK, she's actually been a Patreon from the beginning of our show. And so every month. Um, so I just wanted to give her a shout out. And then we did have a new subscriber this past week, Melody. So she's a, a first Patreon of 2020. So if anybody's interested, um, the, the link rolled uh, where you all can join and, and check that out. Um, CEU opportunities will be available. Um, we got some 
some awesome stickers. I must curse there for a second. <laughs> some awesome stickers um, that I actually just dropped some in the mail for you, Denisha. And so, um, yeah, so we send those out to Patreons. We're actually going to send all of uh, our panelists and people who've been on the show. We're going to backlog. So you all get a cool sticker um, for being on the show tonight, too. So, um, so yeah. So be a Patreon. That's, that's it. How about that? <laughs> Let me just say that that sticker is so cute. And if you haven't seen it just yet, go to our social sites. You can go to Facebook at uh, Beautiful Humans Cast, or you can go to Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and see what Erin is talking about. Super cute. Anyway, <laughs> let's get to it. Yeah. So I want to get started by allowing our guests to kind of tell you about themselves. And we're going to start off with Miss Jada Tucker, who, like I said earlier, kind of, you know, was able to feed this idea to me um, with her request of being here. So Jada, take it away. Let us know who you are. Awesome. First of all, hello. Good evening. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, my name is Jada Tucker. I am a behavior analyst that is licensed to practice in Maryland. Um, I started working in the field of behavior analysis in 2009 at Kennedy Krieger. And from there, I just absolutely loved, loved, loved the field. So um, I ended up applying to graduate schools all around the DMV. I ended up going to George Mason. Um, where I went and graduated with my master's in ABA, and I've been pretty much working in in-home um, ever since. So I'm very, very passionate about the in-home model. Um, I'm also currently working on my PhD, which hopefully I defend in March. That's next month. So I'm wrapping that up. Um, and again, I'm very, very passionate about the in-home field. So a lot of my research has been focused on um, improving the in-home model. And I think that's pretty much it. Awesome. Uh, next up, we have Shamika McGammon. Yeah, hi. Um, thank you all for having me tonight. Um, I really respect what you guys are doing with this podcast, and I, I, I'm hopeful that um, the panel tonight will, will further reach uh, your audience. Um, I have been practicing for several years now. I started in in-home programming as well and really fell in love with um, parent training um, and really just grew fast in the field, wanting to, to know everything all at one time. So immediately upon undergrad, I jumped into a master's program and then obviously um, practicing in the field for several years. So I have played almost every possible role you can think of as far as uh, training, therapist and program consultant and staff training and all of that stuff. So that's been a wonderful experience, but I have shifted my interest in looking more at um, how we train future clinicians and teachers in making database decision-making. And so my studies um, in my PhD program is mostly focused on that. Perfect. Well, welcome. Glad to have you, Mika. Um, and next up, we have Robin Williams. Hi, thank you. I am super duper excited to be invited uh, to be a part of this podcast. And just amazingly, I feel so honored because I've been following you guys' work and, and I admire it. Um, I've been a behavior analyst since 1999. So when I finished um, 
my undergrad in psychology, I was working in the field under some big dudes here in Florida, um, Jose Martinez, Dr. Patrick McGreevy. They were the first people that I took my certification courses under. And I worked in some facilities working with children, primarily with pretty severe and intensive behaviors, and just fell in love with the field then. Um, I went on to be a special ed teacher, but in the in my downtime from school, I was doing ABA work, ABA consulting, um, and I've done that the whole entire time. I've had an agency for 15 years. I was co-owner of an agency with a friend of mine who is an LHC, um, and then just last year branched out uh, back to my own solo practice. I focus primarily on training teachers. I consult in-home still a little bit. That's... Um, that's the base, that's the root. It keeps me kind of fresh and in the field. But I've been supervisor, agency owner, trainer, um, presenting at conferences. And I really am passionate about teacher training and social justice and equity. You are goals. Thank you, Robin, for joining us. Um, and last but definitely not least, we have Sean Capel. I echo sentiments of my other panelists by saying how super excited I am to be here and to lend my voice to kind of the things that I've noticed in the field over a multitude of years. Um, I started in the field back in 2010. I started a little late. Um, I worked in hospitality for quite some time. Um, realized that I missed my nights and my weekends and my holidays. So I decided originally to go back to school for school psychology, um, realized that was not the field for me and kind of stumbled into ABA and fell in love from day one and have been moving ever since. Um, in my time, unlike the other panelists, I, I personally love kids, but I, my passion has always been with the adult learners. Um, I just find them so much more complex and fun. Um, so most of my, a lot of my work has been working with adults within group homes, um, and training staff. Um, I currently am pursuing a PhD in applied behavior analysis. Um, and my primary research focus is kind of, a uh, uh, interest of mine, um, re regarding using stimulus equivalence training, um, to s target specific areas of culture awareness and diversity. Cause I feel that. That's something that we could definitely use some improvement in. Um, I also own an agency um, about two years now. Hopefully in the next couple of months, God willing, we'll be moving to Texas. So hopefully things will be moving from there. Texas, all right. They say everything's bigger there. Absolutely. <laughs> we have so many um, soon to be doctors in the house tonight, PhDs. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say those people are the goals, not me. <laughs> That's awesome. You all definitely are all goals. Um, all right. Well, let's get right into this. Um, everyone has taken a moment to highlight their work, which I'm super appreciative of. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have thought, who's doing what in our field? And specifically, who's doing what that are not the usual suspects, right? Um, and so to have you all kind of outline your own expertise and tell us, you know, what your research interests are, I hope that our listeners are hearing that when they start to think of who can they work with that um, are not, like I said, the usual suspects and, and be able to think outside the box. And so 
thank you all for doing that. We're going to talk a lot tonight about experiences with the panel. I felt like it's important to hear our stories. Sometimes when we start talking about data in this field, um, it's very interesting that we don't, that some people don't like listen to the stories that others are tacting as evidence. Um, but I think that information is very useful and it can inform us and our practices moving forward. So um, while we hear from you all as you're tacting your um, your experiences, your learning history, um, you know, Aaron and I just want to sit back and kind of hear that. Um, so the first thing that we're that I have for you all tonight is how does your racial identity show up in your work, if at all? For many years working in the field and doing in-home services, when folks would contact me to come out, can you do an assessment? And, you know, we have this initial phone consultation. I don't sound like these stereotypical Southern Black girl born raised in Florida, although I am. So there were many times where I didn't think my Blackness was showing up in work until I was confronted with my Blackness by others. When I showed up at their door and looking like, oh, you're Robin. You don't sound like Robin Williams. Um, so I didn't, I didn't really think about it much until I had those repeated experiences. Um, and then when I got into more um, group homework and working on state level, and sitting on local review committees where I was the only Black person, I would just get these snide comments. So I feel like my Blackness has shown up at work, not because I wanted it to, but because I was confronted with it by people that I was even shocked, that was shocked that I was even in the room, or shocked that I was the behavior analyst showing up to assess their child or work with their child. I feel like my racial identity shows up all the time, um, especially when I'm interacting with a lot of my diverse families. Um, I sort of have a story. So before, very early on in my career, I mentioned that I went to George Mason. So um, I worked in Northern, Northern Virginia um, doing ABA services uh, for a lot of families that were different racially than I was. So um, I went to George Mason too, which was a very, very much so a PWI. And I was surrounded around people who weren't the same race as me. So I think that when I entered the classroom and when I entered uh, clients' homes, it was painfully obvious to them that we were different. And as a result, they didn't know how to interact with me. So for me, you know, the way we look, it's different than one another. The way we talk, the way our mannerisms, our colloquialisms. Um, and I can tell that it bothers them sometimes when they don't necessarily understand how to receive it or how they should act towards me initially. So because of those experiences, no matter who I'm working with, I just try to keep it very real. I mean, I am who I am and I try my best to make others feel comfortable within those differences that we have. And so um, I'm very open. I talk to them, I ask them questions, I get to know them. Um, I'm very open with discussion. So I feel like with, for me, it comes out all the time and kind of piggybacking off of what Robin said. It's like, they don't, they don't off topic expect us to be a certain way, but then when they see you enter the room, they're like, Oh, okay. That's who we're dealing with. That's the BCBA. But I've just found that using your voice and speaking with them and making other people feel comfortable. It really does help. 
I think I've, I've had similar experiences, but they didn't start that way. So when I started in the field as a therapist, it meant nothing to families that, you know, this, this black girl was coming to provide a service to their child. Um, but as I started to move up in position, as well as gain more knowledge in the field and kind of have this platform of speaking from authority, I think that's when my blackness started to really show up. And um, I think it was a much of a slap in the face for me too. Um, I've grown up in a predominantly white town. And so I wasn't even aware of my own blackness until it started to be an issue specifically um, in similar situations that Robin and, uh, had mentioned is that, oh, this is the person that's here to assess my child or, oh, this is the person that runs this clinic. Um, so I think I had to take a step back and acknowledge and respect my own blackness and kind of walk in a space of this is who I am. And yes, I am the person that's assessing your child. Um, but then now in academia, I don't find that it's much of an issue. Um, I am still the, the only black voice, uh, the only black person at the table, but I think I am surrounded by a lot of people that are at least culturally aware, um, maybe not competent completely, but definitely uh, respectful that we do need to have a diverse table. I, my experience was a little bit different. Um, I am considered to be the unicorn of most of my um, professional circles, partly because I am a male, which we know the field doesn't have that many men. And I'm an African-American male, which is almost unheard of. Um, early on in my, in my undergraduate, well, undergraduate slash graduate career, um, I actually had a professor tell me that I would have doors open for me and I would have positions offered just because I was African-American. And unfortunately, he was actually accurate. Um, but I made a conscious decision just because I got a seat at the table, I need to have the knowledge base to back it up. So there were times where I'd walk into a family's house and they would say, oh, you're the therapist. Well, no, I'm actually the person that runs this agency. So yeah, it it's that I understand that a lot of the times when people see me, they don't assume that I've accomplished what I have accomplished. So I feel like a lot of the times in my professional career, I need to work 90 times harder than my counterparts. And then with my counterparts, unfortunately, I am the black voice that they always go to of, oh, well, should I say this? Can I say this? And I'm like, I can't speak for an entire race of individuals, guys. It's just me. I've not been given that power yet. <laughs> not been given the power yet. <laughs> um, yeah, we say it, you know, all the time within the community, but, you know, Blackness is not a monolith. We folks think, feel, believe in many different ways. And, and though there are commonalities, right, there's never going to be one person who can serve as the authority. Um, and many times it seems like that is what certain people expect can you provide insight into this group because you are from this group? And it's like, oh yeah, of course I can. However, this is not how this works, right? So, um, all right. So a lot of you have kind of talked about your leadership roles, where you are right now um, in terms of serving as like the supervisor or the owner of agencies, doing trainings, um, et cetera. 
Can you all discuss your path to leadership? And with that, I would really like for you to talk about your access to supervisors and mentors that look like you. Have you had that during your tenure in this field? And if you did have that, what was the process in actually procuring or securing that person as your mentor or your supervisor? I have not had a supervisor of color in the 20 plus years that I've done this. Um, I've had colleagues that have been in the field longer than I have that have served somewhat as, um, you know, kind of like a mentor, but never a supervisor. Everyone has always been either um, male or a white female. Yeah, same here. Um, I actually had, I was lucky enough to be able to work for a Black-owned ABA company while I was an RBT transitioning into a BCBA. So although I didn't necessarily have supervisors that looked like me, I did work for a company where I felt supported um, and it was very refreshing and it helped me with my confidence in the field um, just because I knew that I worked for a company that really, really had that support and had my back when, you know, I did have issues in the field or if I wanted to come to them and talk to them about, you know, differences that I was having with my supervisor that I know I couldn't bring to my supervisor because she or he may not have understood. My supervisor was a Caucasian man, love him, but that's what it was. Um, my role to leadership, I was within a predominantly Caucasian um, company at that point. So the fact that I obtained a leadership role shocked a whole bunch of people, just partly due to my work ethic, because I don't believe in vacations or days off. I like to work, unfortunately, um, which doesn't necessarily help my social life, but that's not here nor there. Self-care, self-care, self-care. Super important, but I needed to get to a point <laughs> where I, I could take the vacations that I wanted to take. Um, and I actually, I still believe in mentorship. So I'm actually in contact and I have an African-American mentor who is currently out in California. And it's really interesting to see how we interact compared to my original supervisor, because there are just conversations and topics that can be had that can't always be had with other people. Yeah, and for me, I have actually never worked with a person of color. Um, I've been in the field for almost 15 years now, and I've always been the only black person in leadership and for the most part, the only black BCBA. Um, and that goes across state lines from South Carolina to Texas and California. So. Um, when it comes to mentorship, I am usually that person for someone else. Um, so I've, I've never really had that um, opportunity. And my goal is to provide that for, you know, people of color who are trying to enter the field and to move up and in leadership positions as well. I definitely have to say that that's been one of my goals as well. Um, with owning an agency and even now back in solo practice, just being more aware of who is in the field, staying connected to RBTs and BCABAs who used to work for me that are people, of all of them, but especially those that are people of color who want to advance in the field and being just like a, a guide for them and a support system. 
part of a support system. So I must say, you know, my um, experience is very similar to all of you all's. Um, when I started, I started off as a as a therapist. And over the trajectory of my career, it's always been myself and maybe one other. Like I've always been able to have at least one other, maybe. And so, um, and, and that is person of color in general, not just like one other black person, but one other person that is of color, a minority, a racial minority. Um, and so then I moved to Baltimore and I feel like Baltimore is just very different than Missouri and even in New York where, you know, no one really looks like me. Um, even the therapists were not of color. But when I moved to Maryland, a lot of the RBTs or line staff are actually racial minorities. And so seeing that, number one, it was it's just it was different. And I immediately was like, wow, am I home? Um, and I felt that connection in a different way that I hadn't had. And it made me think about supervision a little bit differently as well. Um, it's it's easier for me to consider um, supervision in a very cookie cutter way um, when I was supervising folks that didn't look like me. But once realizing that the numbers are different in the fields or that you don't see minorities that often, you've I, I felt like a, a need to like, let's help groom you, like groom you to stay here and groom you to to climb up in the ranks. You can become a BCBA one day as well. And so I, I feel like there's a little difference in that and, and just people wanting to have that connection, that similarity, um, and knowing that they could do it too because they see you in that position of leadership. So um, I, I, um, I, I just want to chime in on that, Denisha, if I can. In a lot of the, <clears throat> excuse me, in a lot of the work that I'm currently doing, um, I'm serving as clinical director for group homes, intensive behavior and behavior focused group homes here in central Florida. And I've done that work for, for some time. But what I'm noticing is that more and more uh, black, there are more and more black providers and owners of group homes here. And the majority of their staff in, in central Florida tends to be black or Hispanic. So when they see me come in as the BCBA and they're watching what I'm doing and they're seeing the changes and the clients, it's like, oh, well, what do you do? Will you tell me more about it? And I'm so quick to tell people, hey, have you ever heard of what, uh, an RBT, a registered behavior technician? This is your path. This is a step that you can start. You can begin and ultimately end in the same career because they care for the people that they work for. They have a genuine heart that the, the people that typically come and ask me, they have a genuine heart for individuals with developmental disabilities. And they really like seeing the changes that the science of ABA can bring about if it's implemented with, with fidelity, right? So I'm happy to be that cheerleader and that support of, yes, you can do this. You can do the same thing I'm doing and you can flourish, you can excel. I love it. And I, and I think that... Um... As we talk about this field branching out, like the ones that are here already, um, we have the ability to kind of speak to one, our experiences, but then also be able to to build people's strengths up. So I, yeah, I, I can't um, stress enough how important that it's been for me to see other people of color, to go to a conference and look around. And even if I'm only able to count six of us or three of us, to see that connection like, hey, like we're here. 
the funny thing is denisha when i met you i think last year at abba um i walked in knowing i'm probably gonna be the only person that looks like me and i was walking around and i just started to see all these these african-american faces and i was like wait a minute did something did something change so as like when I spoke with Denisha and she started to connect me into some of the social media groups and things of nature. It literally blew my mind on my, like, I literally, at one point, don't tell anybody this, but on my way, like, the first, right after I met Denisha, I literally went back to my hotel room and had a couple of tears because I was like, yo, I am not the only person that actually does this. Because a lot of my experience was, we're a lot, I know, being in Jersey and working in group homes, a lot of our frontline staff are African-American, but a lot of our leadership and a lot of the people that we look up to are not. So to see people that were up there presenting, I was like, okay, so I guess I'm on the right path. Makes sense. Um, Yay for confirmation. Literally. Yes. And I kind of (laughs) want to talk to um, our listeners just so that, you know, folks who are not part of um, a racial minority or just a minority in general may not understand what people mean when they say seeing someone in a position of leadership, seeing someone speaking that looks like me, like what that actually does. When you go to conferences time after time after time again, and you see no one that's on that stage that looks like you or in anywhere near you, it kind of sends a message that that space is not for me. My space is in the audience. Actually, is my space really in this audience because we're barely here too? And so to be able to just have a connection with someone and say, wow, like they're doing this, I think it really evokes the I can do this too spirit. Um, And knowing that that could be you on that stage, that could be you on that podcast, that could be you as a BCBA. And so that's what that representation part really means to me. So, yeah, I didn't ask you all this question previously, but I would love if you all could kind of speak to this because we're on the topic of conferences. Um, For me, when I go to conferences, I have a whole routine or any place that is going to be predominantly white. I have a whole routine that I have to go through to prepare myself. And I'm wondering if that is the case for any of you all. And Sean, you're shaking your head, so I feel like that's resonating with you. Can y'all speak to me about your preparation stage? I feel like I'm always in preparation. Uh, I work with mostly white people. I'm, if I'm not at the group home, I, I, I feel like I work with mostly white people. When, and especially when I'm in a conference setting, if I'm presenting, I'm around mostly white people, so I'm always in my, I'm always mentally like hyper aware of my behavior, how I'm interacting, my facial expressions. My colleagues tell me all the time, Robin, we never know what you're thinking. You're so stoic. You don't, you don't show any emotion. Well, I, I've kind of been trained to be that way because people often mistake what I'm trying to convey if I show any expression, which I think is part of, of being a black person in mostly white spaces. So I feel like I'm always in preparation mode. I can't think of a specific routine that I have, but yeah, every day when I get ready to go to work, it's, I mean, down to what am I going to wear? Am I going to put my hair up this way? Am I going to show that I have a tattoo or not, depending on where I'm going? So it's, it's always something. 
I can, I totally second everything that you just said. As a Black Mm -hmm. woman, we kind of do have to go that extra mile to always think about, okay, how are we coming off to our colleagues? How are we coming off to our clients? You know, do we wear this or do we wear that? Do we say this? Do we say that? And I've gotten that same um, that same comment about my facial expressions too from um, my former clinical director at my last company who was Caucasian. And she would always tell me, like, I can never tell what you're thinking. I can never tell whether you're happy. I can never tell whether you're sad. And that was because of, you know, past experiences that I've had with her, you know, I didn't know how to react because I always sometimes felt like if I reacted a certain way, it would be perceived wrong because it was in the past. So totally agree with what you just stated. I feel like too, it it kind of makes me angry sometimes too, just that as a black woman, I feel like we always have to do that just to make other people feel comfortable. And to, to be honest, it pisses me off. Like, I should not have to always temper myself or remain stoic most times because it helps you to feel comfortable. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation. But, but you know, I'm sure that most of us on the call can, can um, we share that same sentiment. I think for me, it's my preparation is making sure that I have a voice at the table, right? So... I am that person that will go over my talk several times just to make sure that I sound equal, right? Or, or more than, right? So I, I feel like my entire career has been giving 150% just so that I can be viewed as 100%, right? Um, not so much concerning my appearance or facial expressions or anything like that, but it's just being viewed as someone who has an equal voice in the conversation. That's a great point, Mika. For me, I'm a little different. Um, as a, as an African-American male, especially within this field, I understand that every aspect of everything I do is scrutinized, is critiqued in some way, shape, and or form. So even with, I know the, um, ABBA is coming up in a couple of months. I am already thinking about not just the presentations that I'm doing, but I'm factoring in when can I get my haircut because I need to make sure I look right, figuring out the outfits and how I need to present myself, partly because I understand that if I'm going to be in front of people, there's a way that I need to present myself. I cannot walk in in just a regular shirt, no tie, and regular shoes. I've got to walk in with the full three-piece situation and Although it does take a lot of effort, I feel like I have to put in a lot more effort when it really isn't. The only thing that should matter is what's coming out of my mouth. Unfortunately, that's not always the case, but I understand the seat that I'm in, but I also wanna ensure that even with my presentation, I'm not deterring or turning people off, which shouldn't be the case, but unfortunately it is sometimes. So I have a question to the other panelists because I don't know if it's because, you know, people say once you hit 40 years old, forget it, you don't care about anything, you don't care about what people think. I don't know. But as I get older and as I continue to learn and continue to grow and continue to develop myself professionally, I feel like those 
things, our appearance, um, it should not, we know that it should not matter, but I'm just wondering to the other panelists, how do you deal with the frustration and anger that comes with that, really? Because I go to so many conferences and there are so many other BCBAs with just as much experience as I have, and they can walk into a room with ripped up jeans and chucks and a dirty t-shirt and present, and they are taken seriously and they're comfortable. And I like jeans. I like chucks. I can't do that. You know what I'm saying? So how do you, how do you deal with the frustration that comes with that? So Robin, that's actually just real fast. I've been like formulating this question in my head ever since Sean said something about your workhorse and like, and then Robin, you said something about self-care, but it's like, does that all factor into this and in, in like elevated levels of stress as like this needing to almost like prove yourself um, at, at Sean, what you just said is like, it, it resonates. Cause I have, I've been at conferences where I've seen white male presenters go in with, with wrinkled shirts and, and sandals on and, and baggy khakis and, and the room is packed and full, you know, and, um, and you're saying that's, that's not the case and just your perspective of that. Um, so I guess I, I was just kind of formulating that. Does that like play into like burnout and, 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 you know, all of that for you all? Yes, not the it does. Not the Absolutely. I mean, you may be able to hear the frustration in my voice. I, I get kind of sick of it because all of us on this call, all six of us, all of us, we're all capable and knowledgeable in our own right. And I understand professionalism and standards and those things. However, it, it's not um, that everyone is not held to the same standard. And we know this to be true, right? So how does everyone else deal with it? I'm sure we all have our own self-care routines that we do, but I wonder if that's something that will ever change, you know? I know with me, um, it doesn't affect me. I'm gonna be completely honest with you. I personally enjoy it. And the reason why is because I understand that I am a minority in a minority in a minority. So a lot of the times when I step onto the stage, I need you to see me coming from a mile away. Like I need you to me, and this is my own personal thing. I need you to, I dress like I am the one that's running everything in here. So when you see me and when I open my mouth, there is no question of, yes, I might be a minority, but I will talk circles around you. So a lot of the times when I've actually had clinicians tell me, that they were surprised at my knowledge. And I'm like, I know that you don't need, don't clock me, let me do what I need to do. So that way, when, when you start to see books and articles and things from me, just, just understand that I get like over third to me, I look at it like, who gonna check me? Let's go, who gonna check me? Lord knows. <laughs> So for me, when I'm preparing for conferences, um, there's definitely some, that feeling of I'm already burnt out before I go. Like I have to mentally prepare myself for microaggressions. I have to mentally prepare myself for the questions that might be related to my expertise that are just, you know, you kind of like question their question, like, I wonder why they asked me that particular one, like um, where you feel like they're kind of running your resume and just making sure that you belong to be here. Um, but for me, it feels like draining 
to even have to prep for those spaces. And, you know, I have to prepare in a way that's like, well, I've talked about it before. Like I center myself. I have to remember like why I'm doing this, Um, get in touch with like my values, my community values and stuff like that in order for me to walk into those spaces Um, and walk into those spaces whole because I, I hear a lot of what we're saying tonight as being, you know, impacts of systemic oppression. And so we have to shift our behavior. We have to modify the way that we would show up in this room um, to avoid some type of negative consequence, probably, whether it's real, um, like it's a, a real threat in this certain context, or it's just perceived as a threat because of our learning history. And um, so, yeah, that I feel like my experience getting ready to go into those spaces, um, it takes a lot. And so, and I wonder if that is a feeling that our counterparts also share. Like, oh, I got to go, I have to go be the token here, you know, and I have to put on a, a certain voice, which I don't do um, too much now. Like, If you hear me speak, it, I go in between um, the code switch and African-American vernacular English. And I do it intentionally um, because that's how I speak. And that's what you're going to get. <laughs> Honestly, Denisha, I have found in presentations, people like when I do that code switch, people have come up to me like, when you said it that way, it made more sense Absolutely. to me. What, you know, and, and it's not just us. A lot of times our culture becomes the culture. So how we say it is how most everyone is saying it. You know what I mean? I know that that was one of the um, questions we had later down the line, but I was actually going to comment on that about how, you know, we tend to code switch often, but a lot of times other races code switch as well. And I've definitely been around other Caucasian people, other other races where they talk and speak very differently outside of work than they do you know, at work or at conferences. And a lot of the times it'll be the same type of um, language that you hear in hip hop music and rap music, which is usually our culture um, doing those things. So... A lot of the time, I feel like code switching, definitely, we can relate to our counterparts by doing so. Mm -hmm. So for the listeners who are not aware what code switching is, essentially code switching was first studied in terms of linguistics. It's when folks have to uh, modify their language to kind of fit into the... um, larger society's um, linguistic patterns. And so if I have my own way of speaking, which is AAVE, as I spoke earlier, a code switch for me um, would be to shift the way that I pronunciate certain sounds or to take away those twangs. I'm from Missouri. We have a certain dialect that we speak in. So for me to code switch, you wouldn't hear that. Um, So yeah, so going back and forth, um, between the standard English, right? And then AAVE, um, that's what I tend to do versus staying in my code switch, which is, you know, I have to put on my call center voice or whatever that is um, to make sure that folks 
consider me to be intelligent. So um, the rest of you all, what are your thoughts on uh, code switching? Do you do you do that? Do you stick to the regular um, standard English or do you allow yourself to kind of be who you are, speak how you want to speak, regardless of who's listening? Um, and yeah, what are your thoughts on that? For me, um, growing up in North Carolina with a very thick Southern accent, um, and then coming to Jersey and having to lose that accent very quickly. Um, I've always learned to code switch. Um, but I, I am who I am. So to me, I might, I'll slip into certain things. Like I'm always making sure that I'm appropriate for the current setting that I'm in. Like I'm not going, I'm not going to say certain things around certain people. Um, but even within our community, the community, me being considered a minority in that community, there are certain things that I said that I realized it might connect with certain people. So I kind of read the audience I'm with or I'm in to say, okay, I can, I can say certain things. I can, you know, I might be able to say this particular term and not have to give a five minute explanation behind that because they know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm from South Carolina, um, so I've never, I guess I've learned to code switch, but for the most part, I think I grew up speaking standard uh, vernacular, and so in professional settings, I find that I'm not code switching as often as some of my my friends um, in other professions, but I don't think that's something that we should have to do, right? So obviously I have different perspectives from you guys. You you do it frequently, um, but I think it's problematic that in order for us to have, again, uh, an equal seat at the table, we have to conform to what other people think is appropriate or um, the predominant or dominant uh, vernacular. And that's just unnecessary anxiety that is put upon us. I can finger snap to that seriously, because um, I say it a lot, like you're going to get these double negatives. That's how I speak. Um, And it needs to be accepted. I'm speaking English to you. Um, And just you, you understand, (laughs) you understand exactly what I'm saying. Yes. And so to be caught up on that, oh, well, that wasn't said just right, you know? Um, And like feeling like we have to be broken down to that small particle um, in order to be um, equal, I guess, to y'all. Like, I'm not doing that. And yeah, Sean, you were going to say something? I'm going to be quiet. (laughs) No, and honestly, I think we all code switch. I think the entire field, because we go from applied behavior analytic terminology back to quote unquote, regular folks talk, it's, we do it so quickly that I find myself, even with conversations with my loved ones and my parents, I'm talking about certain things and they're like, okay, wait, stop. I don't know what none of them words you just said was. Break it down to me like I'm a four-year-old. All right, cool. Like, so I think it's something like, even when we code switch, I don't think it's something that we do intentionally. I think it's just sometimes, uh, innate behavior that or a habit that we engage in that it's like oh i said that oops i'm sorry my bad whoops 
there was something that I think it was data had mentioned earlier is that um, oftentimes we hear other cultures or other races code switching as well. Um, and we're really seeing that they too are drawing from hip hop and, and rap music and, and our culture as a formal way of speaking with each other. And so I find it very ironic that in a professional setting, those same people almost side eye or question what we said when we are speaking a um, V when they too speak that. So it's almost like you just want to look at people and just say, you know exactly what I'm saying because you too speak this way. Like you listen to the music that represents this vernacular. So of course I understand that you understand what I'm saying. I concur. Finger snaps to that. That's why I just said that. You know exactly what I'm saying. So why are you why are you trying me? My professional side eye is real great. Trust me, because I've been in settings where people say stuff and I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. That now you know, you know that is not how you would typically say that. Agree. So we spent a lot of time um, you know, talking about kind of some of the things that we see in the field um, that have served as problematic to us. Um, I would like for us to kind of talk about how we think our field and people who are part of our fields um, can do better for people of the diaspora. Like what are some actionable steps um, that you would like to see in this field that really incorporates the voices and the experiences of everyone, but especially folks that are part of the diaspora. So I'll jump in because as soon as, Denisha, as soon as you said that my ears perked up, um, last year I actually wrote a blog post on the current state of African-Americans. And in that, um, actually writing that on the way from the last ABBA, um, I had to sit on a plane for three and a half hours and really reflect on what the field was doing right and what we could do better. The first thing I think the fields can do is we can actually acknowledge the problem that we are not as multicultural as we can be and actually and actually release the information that says, okay, this is where we currently are. If we're a field that collects data and we are so data driven, how is it that we don't have demographic data on the current racial and ethnic um, identities to be BCBAs, BADs? and things of that nature. And trust me, I have tried my best to obtain that information from the board and it is the best kept secret in the field. They will not release that at all. Same, I have as well. I actually was ready to evoke my social justice spirit and create a movement to get that data. <laughs> I feel you, Sean. Sign I'm with it. I'm with it, yes. So, okay, we have released the data um acknowledge there's a problem anyone else what are some things that we can do i think that what we could do i think that we should be more outspoken when uncomfortable instances arise i mean i just kind of feel like we should we definitely recognize differences and we find ourselves kind of battling up those feelings that we have instead of having conversations about them. And although those conversations can be so uncomfortable, how can we ever talk about 
changing how things are if we're not acknowledging things like Sean was saying and actually having conversations about them. I agree, Jada. I think that this uh, podcast is definitely a step, an actionable step towards making lots of social change and recognize the beauty in humanity. Um, continuing education, continuing to serve as mentors and being explicit in seeking out people who are inter interested in the field and training them and supporting them is definitely another way that we can combat the, the issue. You have just become my new bestest friend, Ms. Robin. Um, one of the things that I find completely mind-numbing at times is a lot of the times people within our community they just see the RBT credential as the end all be all. And I think that as certified and board certified um, African-American behavior analyst, I think it is our, not just our, our right, but it's our responsibility to educate these quote unquote RBTs and front level staff. Like, no, this is what you're doing right now, but go back to school. There are a million different ways we can get you back into an academic program to get you to get past this test. Another thing I think personally, um, we can diversify the academic settings that are these programs are within. I know I work um, as an adjunct professor within a training program now, and I could be completely wrong, but I don't know of many, if any, um, ABA training programs or ABA um, degree programs within an HBCU. And a lot of the times that's how a lot of us find, figure out what ABA is through that kind of an interaction. So if a lot of African, if we want to increase the diversity of the field, why don't we go where the diversity is and try to bring those individuals in? Because we typically hear about social work, um, social work teachers, medicine, lawyers, and I don't think a lot of the times okay. ABA is even something that's even on people's radars. Yes, I agree so much, Sean. And you're my new BFF as well. Um, <laughs> I, I think that it, within a behavior analysis, it's becoming one of those fields that's being looked at by people of color, Black people like social work, like education. And so let's rope those people in because it's very doable. So um, I think those are great. And um, I love all of those examples that y'all gave. And I think that we all have responsibility into the work that is to be done. And that is, you know, part of it. I also believe that there's work to be done from our allies as well. Um, Sean, you touched on some actionable items for those that are listening who um, serve in the ally or accomplice um, level and what I would also like to hear is what what would you like from people who say that they care about diversity, who say that they care about um, equitable solutions? What would what would you like to see um, on the larger level? Because a lot of times, what happens is in in the larger worlds, these issues of injustices occur, and the onus uh, the onus is on the minorities to fix the issues themselves. And while 
as a capable human being, I will definitely use my voice and my body wherever um, that I can. There's definitely work to be done from the larger scale. And so if we could kind of consider what's the role that individuals who are not of the diaspora could play? Well, personally, the first the first suggestion I would have is to be honest about your lack of understanding. Um, I'm going to say this, it might not be politically correct, but I am so sick and tired of seeing Caucasian talking about diversity in the field of BA. You're, you are not a part of, the, so a lot of the research, a lot of the information that's coming out about diversity is not coming from individuals of a diverse background or population. Um, so just being honest about what you don't know and not being afraid to ask those questions. I think that a lot of the times um, folks get a little scared because they don't want to be considered as ignorant or they don't want to say the wrong thing. But a lot of the only way you're going to be able to identify those faults and those issues and those and your lack of cultural competency is if you actually go in and assess your own cultural competence. Personally. So we've talked um, on the show a lot about intersectionality and folks operating from a lens where they understand, you know, there are many um, areas that can make one person a minority, right? Because we all have different social identities, social classes. Um, But there's something very interesting about what happens a lot of times when um, folks that are doing diversity work that are not a racial minority one, they're paid to speak. Um, they're invited and paid well to speak. So that in itself might be one issue. But then they're paid to speak to um, offer up a voice to diversity. And what tends to happen is they leave out the one thing that they don't understand, which is race. And you cannot look at the larger society and leave that factor out. Not if you live in America, honestly, not if you live in this world at all. Race has so much to do with the way that we have been um, conditioned and the things that we believe. And so if you're not not coming from an intersectional lens, you're really missing the mark. And I think as professionals in our field, we need to do better when we are asking people to come sit at a table to talk about diversity issues. If they are not moving from a lens that is encompassing large, you're not talking about socioeconomic status. You're not talking about race. Those two things right there are the underpinnings of America. So my goodness, you're truly missing a lot of the story. And so, um, Sean, I think that's a a great point that you made. Um, We really need to be Um, intentional and strategic about the work that we're putting out in terms of diversity, because there's always going to be an extra layer. If we're talking about a specific type of rights, um, and I say it on the show a lot, if we're talking about the LGBTQ community, um, if we're talking about trans rights, there needs to be a racial lens that's on top of that. If we're talking about economic justice, there has to be a racial lens on top of that because economic or economic climate justice, they all serve or show up in different ways when you bring that extra variable of a minor, uh, a racial minority into that. And so we have the data to prove that. So how can your conversation be void of that? Um, okay. Thank you. That's my um, tidbit. If y'all listen, you know, I always go on rants, but um, I want to hear from someone else. <laughs> 
Some, some of the work that I'm doing right now in training of teachers, I work with a friend of mine who is definitely an ally in this movement for social justice and equity, a, a white woman, Jennifer Borelli. And we're training teachers on dismantling barriers with particular focus on racism in education. And one of the things that we do in our training is we dissect critical race theory. And we, we share with teachers the matrix of oppression and how there is that intersectionality of injustice. And if you can't, I agree with you, Denisha, I'm right with you. If you cannot understand that, unfortunately, the foundations of our country was built on this social construct of race and power, lawmaking, how that affected so much from the beginning of our country, then you cannot, I don't think that you can adequately say that you are uh, fighting for justice in, in other arenas. You have to take that into account. So um, I think for allies, they have to be very careful when they are speaking, whether it be paid or unpaid. I do a lot of volunteer work with a local organization, a very progressive organization um, here in Florida. But a lot of the people who were speaking and who were the voices of the movement were not amplifying the voices that needed to be amplified. So then what are you really doing? You're really just putting yourself on front street. So how is that, that going to bring in people who don't feel like they have a voice? How is that going to empower them? It's not going to. So the allies in the, the behavior analysis field, people who want to really make a change, change, start with the research that you're doing. If you have the platform and the power for your voice to be heard, do some research on racial inequity within the field or racial inequity in the provision of services. Um, that, that's, that's so key. And does anyone else want to add to that before we kind of move on? I want to allow you to put out anything that you feel might be a solution or it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a system-wide solution, right? I talk a lot about individual uh, behaviors. And so if you have anything, whether it be as, you know, as an individual practitioner, I think you could read this piece of literature, whatever it is. So I want to open up the floor just in case anyone else has anything pressing they want to present. I mean, there is, to me, there's one more thing that I think the field of behavior analysis can specifically do. Um, as a certified individual within within our organization, we understand that we have to do CEUs. That it's a requirement that must be done. Um, I know I am probably not the only one, but I never received any culturally competent training during my entire undergraduate, as well as even my doctoral program. Um, so I think that it would be good, especially now that the field is kind of moving towards this more culturally competent, multicultural approach to have a requirement of a culturally competent or some kind of cultural, cultural CEUs. Um, but also, I think that even for like conference participants, just if you see a workshop that is about cultural competency or something of that nature, simply go and attend because it might make you uncomfortable in the moment, but sometimes most change, it starts with people being uncomfortable. That's good, Sean. I'm off and, my soapbox. And, 
I, I know. Um, we we just talk, talking too much, Sean. Um, <laughs> I think also we have to be aware that cultural competence infers that there's an end. Like, oh yeah, I know all these terms. I know all these strategies. I know all these best practices. And cultural competence is not the end. It's just the beginning. Absolutely. We need to be moving people, always striving to move people towards cultural humility. And when you are you are a culturally humble person, when you're operating from a space of, I want to be a person that practices cultural humility, you understand that the work is ongoing. We all have our biases. We all have our places where we need to learn more. So moving towards cultural humility is where we should be. That's going to be changing all the fields, medicine, and our field that loves so much ABA. Jada, I felt like you were about to say something, so I want to give you the floor. Yes, I was. So I was actually going to chime in after um, Sean's response, but I thought that that was a very good point that he made about you know, making that a requirement for everyone to have to do is to receive some sort of cultural competence training. Um, so I was even thinking, what if the board, the same way we have to get ethics CEUs and supervision CEUs, what if we made it mandatory so that everyone would have to get at least five units of cultural competence CEUs, whether that be, um, I don't know, you interacting with, in your work, a culture that's different than your own, or you attending something that has to do with um, a training in cultures that are different than your own. I think that that would be much needed and actually very important. Or if we could even add that to our coursework, there's no reason why we shouldn't have cultural competence in our coursework. Before I started um, my, my ABA program um, in grad school, I actually went through a year of counseling um, and in um, graduate school. And I didn't like the field so much, but I was very grateful that I was able to take the course in cultural competence. They require that in counseling. And to go from that to ABA and to see that that's not offered, you would think that it is because they're very different practices, but you're still working with people. You're still working with diverse audiences. So why not have that cultural competence as a standard? Absolutely. I love that idea. And for the coursework, because we've, you know, we've talked about that before too, but the, the CEU, because it doesn't just start before your certification. It's something like Robin, you were saying, like competency kind of um, alludes to this finality of learning skill sets that are, you know, finite or something like that. But the cultural curiosity and cultural humility is like this ongoing learning process where you are taking a backseat to somebody and learning from them. And um, Jada, I love that. I think that if there, if there could be anything that could ben like benefit people right now and two, it, you know, thinking about if diversity really is quote unquote diversity or cultural <coughs> competency is a, is a value of um, behavior analysis, what better way to put, you know, words into action. You know, I think that that's um, I think that's awesome. Awesome. All right. So, um, I, I'm interested to know um, your all's experience with culture, um, cultural humility, awareness, um, et cetera, with your clients, your research participants. How did you start to learn the concept and um, start to exhibit 
not expertise in that area, but just we we keep using the word competency and we know the differences now. But how did you start to exhibit those culturally humble or aware behaviors towards your clients or your researcher participants? Where did you learn it? And why did you even feel the need to incorporate that in your work from the from the beginning? Well, the I don't up. Oh, you want to go? Go ahead, Mika. I think, you know, my first five years in the field, um, it wasn't a variable at all. Um, and so I want to say it was when I moved to California and then on to Texas, where I was more aware of the microaggressions that I was experiencing, um, that I then began to look at it from more of a social validity perspective, right? So anytime I served staff or families of diverse backgrounds, um, that was at the forefront. So what is valuable in your home? What is valuable in your culture? Um, what do you think about this intervention? Um, so I think as a field, that's kind of where it starts is from that social validity standpoint, right? Like a lot of our research looks at the social validity of, a, of an intervention after the fact, but I think we need to do better at hearing voices um, at the outset of an intervention, of assessment, of intake, things like that. That was actually going to be very similar to my answer. Um, I completely agree with what you just said, Mika. When I was in high school, actually, I went to a high school that was predominantly white. So I kind of grew up kind of already dealing with the same things that I'm dealing with in the field. I dealt with the microaggressions. I dealt with, you know, feeling different or feeling inferior in the beginning and then learning how to use my voice in the end. Um, and how I did that was I just kind of talked to people. You know, I got to know them. I asked them questions about themselves. I got to know people on a personal level while also allowing people to get to know me on a personal level. And overall, I feel like that really does help um, everyone feel a little bit more comfortable with one another. Um, it's just unfortunate that sometimes, you know, some people just have no interest in doing that. So how we can get people more interested in having conversations and talking and getting to know other cultures other than their own um, is definitely a working progress. I, for me, um, I know during my undergraduate training, I worked in a very specific set of homes. And it wasn't until I went into a lower socioeconomic home that I realized how drastically different um, service delivery was. Um, even in having discussions with parents about their children, knowing that it had taken them years to get to the point where some of my other families started from. Um, so for me, I, I view it as, I think that we as a field need to step outside of our box. Like, yes, and I have a couple of friends that I love dearly um, that are therapists as well as BCBAs that will not go into certain areas and will not work with certain clients. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, if you're going to be a competent behavior analyst or a competent um, RBT, regardless of racial, ethnic, any of that stuff, you need to be able to implement these same procedures that we learn about across all settings. 
So an intervention in a house where a family is making $2.5 million a year is very different than a family that is currently receiving um, welfare or doesn't have those, those financial reasons that other people, other individuals would. So my thing with the fields, and I'm wondering what your uh, thoughts are in terms of culture and recognizing culture, um, what does it take for behavior analysts to actually get to that point of exhibiting cultural, culturally humble behaviors or um, cultural awareness on a larger scale? Because a lot of times, you know, there are folks who quote uh, Hayes and Terramino's um, article and they say, you know, if behavior analytic principles are generally applicable, then why do we need, you know, to consider culture? And there might be arguments on both sides that a human behavior is human behavior. Um, but when that happens, we're failing to realize that we interact with environments and people in various contexts, right? And so there is certain stimulus control that occurs between whatever um, situation or environments that we go into. Simple greetings, small talk, training. Um, if my SD is different in some type of way, then I might, I might modify my behavior or shift it. And so my thing is that I would love for us to be able to work in our fields in a way that we are not creating a larger issue of assimilation, right? Like you have to come to our line of thinking, which ABA is westernized. You know, this field is very, it is what it is. It was established by white men. Um, we look at different things that are written. You can see cultural differences, right? In terms of, we can talk about, we, we talk a lot about the ethics code, but just in general, um, you can probably come up with different ways that you're like, that doesn't really register for for me as in a racial minority, or it might not register for other people for whatever group that they represent. So my question to you all is, how can we ensure that cultures are not being erased and pushed into a one-size-fits-all approach? I think the first thing we can do is ensure that everyone, regardless of who you are, who you love, where you went, all that other fun stuff, everybody should have a seat at the table. Um, I think that if we're going to make changes as a field regarding the field, our field, the leadership of our field must be represented at the table. Um, I'll use as an example, me and my mentor actually spoke about this. Um, I know that the, um, that ABA, it was a journal was just put out um, regarding special topics within the field, talking specifically about multicultural and diversity issues. Um, now, I don't know how everybody else feels about it, um, but they utilized a picture of Harriet Tubman on the cover. I remember this issue. Yeah. And I remember folks having issue with the issue. Um, I think one thing that I would have liked to see, I didn't have a, an issue with Harriet Tubman because who Harriet Tubman for me, who she represents is like a pretty strong figure, right? And so um, 
I personally didn't have a problem from that aspect. But one thing that would have been nice is to know why Harriet Tubman, like what is this symbolized for this issue? Uh, because for me, Absolutely. when I see Harriet Tubman, my mind starts filling in certain blanks based on her legacy and everything that she did. So to me, I see an extremely strong person to have on the front of any cover who's worthy of that. But I would, but I think it, it might have uh, registered a little bit differently for folks that they would have known why Harriet Tubman up front, like, um, and, and to be once again, intentional, right? Um, when we start thinking about solutions, we have to be able to think those through um, versus just saying, okay, let's get somebody that represents this, uh, this group and let's just let Absolutely. this be it. And this will answer all the questions that people have. Like, no, we, we actually have more questions about it. So, um, but Sean, you were breaking up and I just wanted to give that little tid piece, tid fit while you were that doing that, but continue on. No, I mean, I think that, although I think that Harriet Tubman was a, uh, was a great choice, I just think that if we're talking about multicultural issues in the field, it shouldn't just be one particular, like one particular race, one, especially with all the changes that are happening with the board, this is something that is so much larger than one particular individual. So I, that that was where my concern came in. Yeah, I was gonna um, kind of speak to that also, Sean, the concern with what is happening with the board and the international certification or lack thereof um, now or soon to be, just how are we supporting individuals worldwide who see the effectiveness of applied behavior analysis and who have started an education program to become certified, where is the BACB in assisting people throughout the world in either developing their international boards, um, since this, you know, the BACB is, is the one. So where are we with that and what are the next steps so that we can move, really truly move toward multiculturalism? If we're saying that people in other countries cannot become certified as behavior analysts or practice behavior analysis, then that to me is a big slap in the face to that. We're not a multicultural practice. We are not uh, people who believe that this science can be applied uh, across many different identity markers. So what are, what are we going to do about that? Uh, I would love to hear from Jada or Mika, um, anything that you have to add. I will say that I did appreciate, I'm, I might be an outlier. I appreciate the BACB recognizing their limits. I think um, we have to be able to do that. We, we really do. No matter how you can have all the intentions in the world. I really want to serve. I want to be a multicultural unit, but if, if we're not living up to that, you don't have the ability, whether it's a legal structure or not, we, we don't, and none of us know, right? Cause we're not on the board. Um, but for me, I, I thought that that was a great move in the direction because I'm hoping that people that are local are able to be in those positions because they are the ones who know best, right? You, you cannot, um, have a set of requirements over a specific group of folks. If you're, if you have no idea what's important to those individuals or how they operate in their space. And so I took it as a humble step in recognizing that we all have limitations and our field is definitely exposed limitations. Um, so I'm, I'm happy about that 
personally, but I know there has been a lot of uproar about that, so I'm an outlier. But Mika, it, it, or, oh, go ahead, Robin. Can I, can I say something to that really quick? It is definitely a humble step, and I agree with you in that this this one body cannot say that this is what what the standards should be for cultures across the world. But how my my next question then is. How is the BACB supporting individuals across the world since the Behavior Analyst Certification Board is the first to certify behavior analysis as a board? So how are they supporting others uh, internationally? And I know that there are some things in place. Um, I'm just wondering how comprehensive and or supportive they are. I think those are all good questions. So my initial question to you all was, um, you know, how can we ensure that cultures are not going to be erased or they're not getting erased with our work? Um, And like I said, I would love to hear from Jada or Mika if you all want to add anything to this part of the conversation. Um, Yeah, so I think that, you know, we often misconstrue or misinterpret that word culture, right? So it's not just race. I think we also need to um, have an awareness that culture includes values, practices, and norms, right? So what, uh, what behaviors are reinforced in those communities? And so that can be going from one Black home to the next Black home. They can be completely different in culture. So I think as a field is first recognizing that we need to understand the values and the norms of the people that we're serving. And I think once we can do that, then we will begin to um, to operate in cultural competence, right? I think that is a very misunderstood term right now. Um, people, especially when it's, hurt, it's spoken from us, right? People, when we say cultural competence, people assume that we're talking about race, right? Um, it's not just race. It's not just an issue of uh, ethnic diversity and uh, microaggressions and, and, and all of the other things that we've talked about. It's actually valuing the person. And I don't think we do enough of that. Yes. And that's so, so, so very true. I actually had a supervisor who I worked under as an RBT. Um, and it was just very interesting. His primary focus was animal behavior. He was very, very brilliant, but he did not really understand how to do applied work. Um, but he tried to train one of our clients who was an inner city youth. He tried to train him with an animal clicker, which I was thinking to myself, I don't think that that's going to be very effective given you know, his environment and it's not it's probably not going to work needless to say long story short it didn't it was completely ineffective and i had to develop like an entire intervention to help this kid but it just goes to show you that going back to what um, mika was saying we really do have to take a step back and learn about other cultures and their values and their environments because they are all different And in order for us to be able to effectively serve our communities that are different than we are, we have to understand them. I I love the fact that you brought up clicker training. Um, I think it reminds us that even some of the strategies that we employ might be different for the individuals. Like clicker training obviously has an evidence base, right? Um, And it's useful for some folks. And, um, but 
given someone's history, whatever that might be, that might not be effective. And we need to be able to be flexible and say, and even though I use this uh, evidence based with someone else, um, this might not work in this context with this particular person. This is also another reason why I think it's important for us to have an evidence base that actually mentions culture so that we are seeing differences. Because if we're studying the same pool of folks, um, there's no way for us to know if there's going to be a difference in acceptability, social validity um, for this particular uh, strategy or whatever it is. So um, that's a good point that you bring up. So I guess, you know, I would love to just open the floor up before we start to close this thing out um, and just give you all space. We've been talking for a little bit now. Is there anything else that you want to say to our audience members before we go? Um, I just want to thank you, Denisha and Aaron, for your podcast and for being like on the forefront and really trailblazing change with having these conversations, whether it be about race, gender, gender identity, whatever it's about. I appreciate it and um, just continue the good work. I'm happy to be a part of it and look forward to more conversations like this. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Appreciate that positive feedback. Thank you, Denisha and Erin, for, again, having us on your podcast. Um, It's definitely been a pleasure. I'm very happy that you all are bringing up a lot of these issues that exist in today's ABA world because a lot of the times, you know, they go unspoken or swept under the rug. And like I've said a few times already in a lot of my answers, a lot of these issues won't ever get resolved unless we have these discussions and unless, you know, we get people out of their comfort zones and addressing the fact that these issues do exist. So great work. I will definitely, definitely support you all in any way that I possibly can. And thanks again. I kind of feel like y'all feel like you may have to say thank you. You definitely don't have to. The pleasure is ours. (laughs) Holy and truly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to say thank you. So again, I have to say thank you. um, Like big ups to both you, Denisha and Aaron, um, for even allowing this kind of conversation to occur. Um, Y'all know I'm down for whatever. But I think for your your listeners, I think that the biggest thing I think they could potentially take away is not to stop here to where, yes, it's great to listen to a podcast, but to take the things that you hear within this podcast and actually apply them into your professional life, your personal life, attend conferences, do research, lend a hand to others, because if it's a mammoth task to move the field forward, but if we all take a little step at a time, it will make it a lot easier. That's good. And, and um, just to chime in for, for the listeners, because I think I started that, um, with saying thank you first. So I modeled that for everybody and they just kind of followed along. But I think that one of the things that has been resounding that we've repeated throughout the podcast is the need for more research within the field. And if you are a listener and you are not a racial minority, which I don't even think that that exists much anymore for people of color, we're not the racial minority. But if you're not 
black or Hispanic or uh, if you're white, partner with someone else who is in the field that you know and begin to do that research. And the reason why I say partner is because we do want to make sure that we are giving voice to people who may not have voice and building power with people who may not have the same sort of power that you might have. Awesome. Well, I do want us to wrap up and Mika, now that you're back, if you have anything else that you would like to say to the audience members, I will give you the floor and then we'll take this on out of here. Sure. Um, I'm not quite sure what you ca- what you caught, but um, you know, I, I just want to make sure that we're challenging your audience as well as ourselves to um, to move in those spaces that make us feel uncomfortable, um, because there's not going to be an awareness nor a change in this space, in this these concepts of cultural competence and diversity and inclusion and social justice, unless we talk about them, unless we're in a space where that that is the conversation. Um, so I hope that your audience shares this with their friends, um, you know, just so that they have a new perspective and, um, you know, take action, as Sean said. Um, don't just hear this this conversation and say, oh, well, that was great. Now I now I'm socially competent. I'm woke now. No, we'll do something with that. Um, apply these in, in your, your work settings as well as in your personal lives. Awesome. So one of the things that I wanted you all to talk to our audience members about tonight were any resources, things that you read or things that you know might be useful to people doing the work, because this is work. Um, but I would love for you all to share that with us um, after the podcast and we can put it in our show notes. Um, and yeah, so Aaron, do you have any homework that you want to give our listeners tonight? Um, gosh. Okay. So throughout this entire conversation, like I, I just listened, there were so many, I guess the terms like acronyms or there's a lot of terminology that you all were using that I had no idea what it was. And if there's a, like for me, I just Googled it and you can learn so much just like, you know, you all were saying, um, I think Jada in the beginning, you said PWI and then Sean, you said HBCU and it just rattled off so fast. And I was like, wait a minute, what do those mean? And so I didn't know, Google it, find out, learn about, learn about what that is and what value that holds. Um, so for me, I, I got, I don't know. I just added to my vocabulary tonight, but that was that was awesome. So, um, but I think that's, th- that for me is like, if you hear something you don't, you don't know, or it's different or you don't understand, just don't keep going, figure that out. Like dive into that. It's like that space where it's uncomfortable and you're like, Hmm, or it makes you think like, figure that out, stop there and, and dive into that a little bit. So, um, so yeah, that, I don't know if that's sufficient for homework. That <laughs> is great homework. No, that's perfect. Um, And also, if you are on our Instagram page, you should see that we've been sharing a Black History Month challenge that is done by Rachel Cargill, which is an author who talks about uh, systemic oppression, specifically uh, racial oppression in this country. And she um, is definitely a great resource. But right now she is creating prompts for people to Google. That's all you have to do. Use your Google. And so far we have um, learned so much in just these 11 days. We actually didn't post today, but it's going to be posted before this show comes out. 
I would say take part in the, the prompt challenge. If you are missing the ones that we put up each day, go to Rachel Cargill's page and do those prompts. Because as she says, and so many people have said, Black history is American history. So that could be researches. I mean, that could be your homework as well. And with that being said, we just want to thank everyone for listening. And thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us. Stay tuned for the next next show. Yeah. Stay tuned for the next show. We got to get that down better. (laughs) (laughs) Bye, beautiful humans. Hey, it's Denisha and Erin. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm-hmm.